All right. Well, good morning, church. Listen, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Will Franco. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it's so good to be back here with you. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I was out of the pulpit sitting here in the audience with you. Last week, I was at Wheaton Bible Church preaching over there, um, and it's so good to be back with you again this morning. And this morning, we are continuing our summer series entitled One Story. We are in the second installment of our summer series entitled One Story. And what we are doing with this series is this is a series that we hope to do every summer. So every summer, we're going to do the same series, but we're going to be looking at a different character. So the hope is to show how Jesus and whatever Old Testament character we choose uh, are connected. Uh, And so in this series, we have chosen Abraham uh, as the person to begin with. And so for the next few weeks, we are going to be looking at the life of Abraham through the lens of Jesus. So to do that, what I want to do this morning is we are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 11, the last few verses of Genesis chapter 11, and the first few verses of Genesis chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles or your electronic devices, go ahead and turn those on or turn there now. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, and we're going to read through Genesis chapter 12, verse 9, verse 9. So What I would love for you to do is to stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to begin reading in verse 27 of chapter 11. If you're with me, say amen. Amen. Here's what it says. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was unable to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Everyone say, settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning declaring that your word is perfect. 
that your law is blameless. That's what the word says. The problem is, is that even though your word is perfect, the messenger is imperfect. And even though the law is blameless, the messenger has a lot of blame. And so, Father, I pray that you would keep me from saying anything that does not come from you. I pray, Lord, that from the moment I say amen, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father God, I ask you and I beg you that you would speak through me so that we would not waste our time. Father God, I pray that you would give me compassion. I pray that you would give me concision. I pray that you would give me conviction. And we ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people say, you may be seated. All right, so like I already mentioned, this morning we are continuing our series entitled One Story, and we are looking at Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, through Genesis chapter 12, verse 9. And even though these are a lot of verses, what we're going to do is we are going to look at this passage or these passages under three headings. This morning we are going to begin by looking at the cast, and after we look at the cast, we're going to look at the cost, and then we're going to conclude by looking at the covenant. So we're going to look at the cast of characters, then we're going to look at the costs of following, and we're going to conclude by looking at the covenant of grace. So this morning, I want to begin uh, by looking at this passage under the lens of that first point, which is the cast. Now, here's what I mean by the cast. One of the things that I want to do before we jump in, before I talk about what God did, I want to talk to you about who God used, okay? Before I talk about what he did, I want to talk to you about who he used. And one of the things that I was tempted to do this week as I was looking at uh, that, that last half of Genesis chapter 11, I did everything in my power to try to find some type of redeeming quality in the people that God decided to use. I, took, I looked very, very closely at the cast of characters that God used. And I'm like, man, I just, there's got to be something good about these people. There's got to be something that they bring to the table. They can't be this bad. Honestly, but, but as the more I looked and the more I studied, the, the words that came to mind as I looked at this cast of characters were words like idolatry, incense, incest, uh, barrenness, disobedience, and worldliness. The more I looked, the worse it got. And the more I looked, the, the, the song that kept playing in my head uh, was that song that you hear at the Price is Right uh, when a contestant gets the wrong answer. It's like, ba-bum, ba-bum, ba It was bad. And the more I looked, the worse it got. So what I, what I started to see is that this, the, the reason why God used these people is not because they were good, but because he was good. It's not because they were perfect, but because he was perfect. It wasn't because they were useful. They were actually useless. It's because he made them useful. And so here's one of the mistakes that we make, and I am actually guilty of this too. One of the mistakes that we are guilty of making when we study the Word of God is we are tempted to take biblical characters, and when we look at the biblical characters, there are two extremes that we fall into. We either see them as the worst people, or we see them as the best people. So you take people like King Saul and Judas, and automatically we assume they're the worst people. Those are the worst kind of people, King Saul and Judas. Then we take other characters in the Bible, and instead of treating them as the worst people, we treat them as the best people. So we take people like, like Noah and like David and like Abraham, and our temptation is to make these people better than what they actually were. And I think one of the people that we do that the worst with is Abraham. 
We put him on a platform that he was never supposed to be on. And we act as if Abraham was this great guy when in reality he was not a great guy. Abraham was not a good person. He did not come from a good family. His family were a bunch of sinful, wicked idolaters. That's all they brought to the table. And so when we put people where they're not supposed to be, we give them credit they're not supposed to have. The cast of characters, it's bad, guys. It's, like, I, I, the, the more I looked at it, the more, the more uh, uh, depressing it got. I'm like, how, how did God do anything with these people? And here's the thing. It got so bad that the issue was not just Abraham and his family. All of humanity had hit a dead end. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 11, it wasn't just uh, Abraham's family that had hit a dead end. All of humanity had driven into a cul-de-sac, and they weren't getting out. They were at the end of their rope by the time we get to Genesis chapter 11. And there's two ways that we can show, I can show you based on Scripture, how they had come to the end of their rope. Here are the two ways in which they had hit a dead end. The first way in which this cast of characters had hit a dead end is they had hit a dead end physically. And here's what I mean. One of the things that we discover when, when Noah and his family get off the ark, Noah has three sons. God tells Noah, it is through Shem, your, one of your sons, I think he's the oldest one if I'm not mistaken, it is through Shem that I am going to bless the world. It is through Shem that the promised seed is going to come from. So a few generations go by and Abraham and his family are from the line of Shem. In other words, the promised seed is supposed to come from Abraham's family. But what we see in Genesis chapter 11 is that all of humanity hit a dead end in Genesis chapter 11. And the reason why is because physically Abraham and Sarah could not have kids. So if they were to die, the line of Shem would be gone and there would be no promised seed and Jesus would never arrive. So the one one couple that was supposed to produce could not produce. The one couple that was supposed to continue the line could not continue the line. She was barren, the Bible says. And so what we see is that in many ways, and barrenness isn't always this way, but in this context in particular, barrenness was a sign of hopelessness. He was 75. She was in her mid-60s. And physically, they had hit a dead end. Humanity was in a cul-de-sac, and they were at the end of their rope. But listen, not only did they hit a dead end physically, but even worse, they had hit a dead end spiritually. Why? Because remember what I said, it is through the line of Shem that God was going to bless the world. In other words, the only line of, of Noah's three sons that was to keep the knowledge of Yahweh alive was the line of Shem. The problem is, when we get to this passage, Abraham and his family were idolaters. The last group of people that were supposed to keep the knowledge of Yahweh alive no longer believed in Yahweh. His name, his dad's name was Terah, which meant moon. They were worshiping the moon god by the time we get to this place. Both in the Ur of the Chaldeans and then later on in Haran, both of those places were were places that worshiped the moon god. So, So even spiritually they have hit a dead end. 
And here's how I know, not just because this passage tells us, but in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua stands up in front of Israel and he says, listen, you have a choice. Who are you going to follow? And that's that famous passage where he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But Joshua said something very interesting about Terah and about Abraham and about his family. He says, you can worship the gods, the, the, the false gods, which Abraham, Terah worshiped. So Joshua confirms that they were idolaters. He confirms that they were worshiping something other than God. These people had hit a spiritual dead end. Literally, the, the, the last hope for humanity was almost gone. The, the flickering light that was still left was about to go out. And that's when God shows up. God picks the worst candidate in the worst circumstances to do his work. So if you feel like a worse candidate or a bad candidate in a bad circumstance, there's good news for you. Here's why, here's why. Because one of the things that could happen is, again, because we are tempted to treat biblical people like they're different than us, but they're not. If God was in the business of using sinners back then, then what that means is God is still in the business of using sinners today. And I don't know if you know this, but those are the only type of people God can use. It's the only option he has. Because if God used good people, not bad people, the, the bench would be thin. And by thin, I mean there would be no one sitting on it. God only uses bad sinners because those are the only people he has to choose from. And one of the mistakes that we can make, one of the lies that we can believe, and if I'm being honest, the enemy wants you to believe these lies, is that there are certain barriers that are insurmountable for us. There are certain barriers that because we are struggling with this area or this thing, God cannot use me. God cannot call me. And here are some of the barriers that we create, which are actually seen in the passage that we're looking at. One of the barriers that we think keep us from being called by God and being used by God are physical barriers. In this passage, there are two major physical barriers that uh, uh, Abraham and his wife were navigating. The first one is that they were older. He was 75, she was 65. One of the, the excuses that we make for why God cannot use us is because we're older. And so I'm going to spend the last 30 years of my life retired somewhere, playing golf, wasting my time, because God can't use me. I'm 65 plus. The problem is, is that when you look at Abraham and when you look at Moses, Moses was 80 and Abraham was 75. And God not only had a plan for them, he had his biggest plan for them at that season of their life. And so if you are disqualifying yourself because of your age, the Bible doesn't give you that excuse. Right? But, but for some of us, it wasn't just the fact that they were struggling uh, physically with age, but they were actually struggling with barrenness. And anyone here who's ever struggled with barrenness knows how difficult that is. That is a very hard thing to navigate. Maybe here today, you're, 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 maybe you're not struggling with, with barrenness. You're struggling with, with cancer or with some sort of disease or some sort of condition. And you, you're not as active as you used to be. You don't have as much energy as you used to have. And you're convinced, God can't use me anymore because I have blank. But whatever you had, God knows you were going to have it. And God can use it in spite of it. And gee, not only will God use you in spite of it, God will use you because of it. Listen, whatever it is that you think is keeping you from obeying God and following his call, not only will he use you in spite of it, he will use you because of it. So if you have cancer, God's going to use you to minister to people who have cancer. If you have barrenness, God's going to use you to minister to people who are struggling with barrenness. 
If you're a widow, God's going to use you to minister to people who are widows. That's what we see, that it's not just in spite of it, it's because of it. So when you use a barrier that should not be there to keep you from what God is calling you to do, the story of Abraham does not allow you to do that. But listen, it's not just a physical barrier that they had to overcome. It was a spiritual barrier. Remember, these people were not good people. They were idolaters. They were sinful worshipers. They were broken. They were depraved. Spiritually, they brought absolutely nothing to the table. And so for some of us, part of the reason why we think God can't use us is because maybe we came to know God, uh, God later in life. And so we don't know the Bible as much as other people. We haven't read as much. We haven't done as much. Well, listen, I didn't grow up in church. I didn't meet Jesus until I was 21. I remember when I first started going to youth group, all these kids knew the Bible, and I had no idea what the Bible was about. I read from the book of Job, and I called it the book of Job, and everybody was laughing at me. But how often do we say, no, no, well, I'm I'm not spiritually ready yet. I'm not spiritually mature yet. Listen, the reality is this. You will never be spiritually mature enough. You will never be spiritually ready enough. If God only used people who were spiritually ready, he would have no one to use. And so that excuse of, I don't know as much, I haven't read as much, I haven't done as much, I'm new to this whole thing, I can't, God can't call me anything big because, you know, I, I don't know. No, God can, and if you allow him, he will. Now, another barrier that they had to overcome, this is probably one of the biggest ones, is they had to overcome an emotional barrier. Here's what I mean by an emotional barrier. Can you imagine what Sarah or Sarai in the passage, her name got changed later on, can you imagine what she would have been navigating? This is where my pastoral side comes out. I've worked with people who have struggled with barrenness, and I've seen just the the sadness, the hopelessness that comes with that. Can you imagine not only her struggling with that, but if she in any way knew that they were the promised line and that she wasn't going to have a kid and the line was going to stop with her, can you imagine the guilt she felt? The shame she felt? Thinking, what did I do? What, what, what could I have done different? Where did I steer away from God's plan for my life? The guilt, the shame that this woman would have felt. I don't know what's keeping you emotionally from following the call of God. Maybe it is guilt. Maybe it is shame because of what you've done or what you didn't do. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's depression. And you could say, oh, God, I can't be used until this thing is taken care of. We don't have that excuse, guys. And just like I said with the other thing, God might use that very, emotion, that very thing, that emotional barrier to be the thing that you minister to people with. He doesn't use you in spite of it. He uses you because of it. But how many of us are disqualifying ourselves from something that God didn't disqualify us from? God can only use disqualified people. And then finally, the the final barrier, which we're going to touch more on this one later on, but it's an important one to mention here, is the relational barrier. There were certain relationships that Abraham had that he was going to have to walk away from in order to follow God's call. For some of you, that's the reason why you're not following God's call this morning. There's a person or there's people or there's a community that you don't want to hurt, that you don't want to leave. I can't do that to them. The problem is, Jesus says it in a slightly different way. Jesus says, anyone who loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
If you love a relationship or if you need a relationship more than you need Jesus, then that's called idolatry. And so maybe you don't have to let something like that go, but you might be called to let something like that go. A relationship or a community or a people group, something that you will have to walk away from in order to follow the call of God on your life. So those are the barriers. What we see, though, is that even though there are numerous barriers, barriers, and even though there are numerous callings, God always uses the same pattern. He calls insignificant people to do significant things. He calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things. So the calling might be different, the barrier might be different, but the pattern is always the same. So the first thing we see is we see the cast, the cast. The second thing that we see in this passage is we see the cost. So not only do we see the cast of characters, but we also get to see the cost of following. Did you know that following the call of God will cost you something? And one of the things that makes me sad is when we tell people it won't cost you something. Listen, if you believe in the gospel where God calls you to something and you don't give anything up, that's not the real gospel. That's a prosperity gospel. Following God will cost you. And when we don't prepare people for that, things get harder, not easier, and they walk away from God because they thought it was going to get easier. But following God will always cost you. We see that all throughout Scripture. We're going to look at Abraham's example in a second. But when, when God calls Noah, God says, Noah, again, Noah wasn't better than anybody. We can make him better, but he wasn't. It, he found favor in the Lord's eyes. He, God showed him grace. was the word there in Hebrew. When God calls Noah, he says, I need you to build an ark because there's a flood coming. Now, the reason why that was significant was because his kids, their wives, and his wife were going to make it. But if you look at the genealogy, there was family members that Noah still had alive that were going to die in the flood. Everyone thinks it was these sinful people he didn't know. The genealogy shows us that there were people who were still alive that were Noah's family members. And to follow the call of God, he was going to have to pay that cost. Jesus says to count the cost before you build anything. But it's not just with Noah. You see it with Moses. Moses, in order to follow God, had to leave the security of the wilderness, the, the comfort of the wilderness, in order to, to go follow God, to go to the very place that he never wanted to go back to. We see it with Isaiah. God calls Isaiah and says, hey, listen, God, he, Isaiah gets this vision of the throne room of God. He's so just blown away by the whole thing that he falls at God's feet. And he, and he says, I am a man of unclean lips. Which is really interesting. I'm getting a, a, a side tangent here for a second, but I learned this the other day. The reason why he talks about his lips is because that was his greatest strength. He was a speaker. And he says that even my greatest strength is like a weakness in God's presence. And he's so blown away by God's glory and God's beauty that God says, who shall I send? He says, send me. And God says, hey, just so you know where I am sending you, they're not going to listen to you. You're going to do ministry there for years and not one person is ever going to convert. Not one person's ever going to listen. Deaf ears and hard hearts is what you're going to get. But go anyways. The disciples. Jesus shows up to the disciples and says, hey, hey, you're no longer going to be fishermen. You're going to be fisher of men. You got to leave your career. You got to leave your, your, your security. You got to leave your comfort zone. I, 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 there's a cost to following me. 
every time God calls someone, both in general when they first come to know him and in the, the smaller thing God, God calls us to, there's always a cost. And, and it, would be, it, would be, it would be wise for us, it would be discerning for us to count the cost because that's what we're called to do. We see it in Scripture all the time. But in this passage in particular, God calls Abraham to give up three things. There are three things that Abraham has to consider to, to, to give up and to count as loss. The Lord had said to Abraham, to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Three costs in order to obey God's call. Let's begin with the first one, which is the country. Actually, let me, let me uh, put the next slide up. I'm going to uh, explain it to you this way. One commentator that I saw put it in these categories, and I, and I found it really helpful. He says, God was calling Abraham to leave his tribe, his clan, and his household. So let me explain to you how ancient Israel was set up. Israel had 12 tribes. Let's, say the tri let's take the tribe of Benjamin, for example. The tribe of Benjamin was made up of multiple clans, and those clans were made of multiple households. See the layers to it? So there was a tribe. That tribe was made up of clans, and that clan was made up of households. So literally, God goes from the general to the personal. It, go, it, goes, it gets harder and harder the deeper you go in, okay? So let's look at each one. The first thing that God tells Abraham to walk away from, the first cost that he had to incur is he had to walk away from his country. Now, in Hebrew, that word there, country, means territory. It means a piece of land. So that's why I put it that way, uh, tribe and or territory. Listen, there are times that God might call you to something, and that calling might require you to leave your current territory. It might require you to leave the, the place in which you reside. Your school, your, 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 your job, or your church, or your community, or your neighborhood, or your state. There are times, not all the time, but there are times when God will call you and it will require you to leave a certain location. Now, what I found so fascinating this week is that commentators disagree on where the Ur of the Chaldeans was. They, they disagree on, if, was it closer to Mesopotamia? Was it closer to, was, it, was Mesopotamia close to Babylon? Like, they, they disagree on where Ur of the Chaldeans was. But here's what all commentators agree on. What they all agree on is that Ur of the Chaldeans was very likely a very wealthy, secure city. Here's why, because Chaldeans there, the Chaldeans actually are, are part of the Babylonians. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar, his father was a Chaldean. So we know there's a connection to Babylon here because that's where Nebuchadnezzar comes from. That's the lineage that Nebuchadnezzar comes from. And so what com commentators say is that even though we don't know where the city was, what we do know about the city is that there is a good chance it was a very fortified, secure, safe place. A place of comfort, a place of resources a place of abundance. So listen to this. In order for Abraham to leave the territory, to leave the tribe, to leave that country, follow this, follow me, he had to leave a place of comfort, a place of security, a place of familiarity, and a place of abundance. Sometimes that's what God calls us to do. Let's go to the next layer. Sometimes what God calls us to do is not necessarily to leave our tribe. Uh, uh, he might call us to do the first one. He always calls us to do the second two, okay? The next thing God might call you to give up is your clan and your community. In the passage, it's the, his people, 
clan or community. Here's what I mean by clan or community. Every person in here is made up of several circles of community. We all here, each person represents several circles of community. We're all made up of several, we all consist of several circles of community. In order to follow the call of God on your life, there are times where you might have to either figuratively or literally, literally walk away from your circles of community. So let me give you some examples of what circles of community would be. You take, you take for example, the culture you grew up in or the race, your racial background. So, so I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the things that had to happen for me is I grew up to Hispanic parents, right? My dad's Cuban, my mom's Puerto Rican. Uh, your boy just did 23andMe, though, and I found out that I'm one-third black. So that makes sense to me because that explained my eighth grade year. I went through a ghetto phase, and it turns out I'm black, okay? Uh, that's why your boy looks so good. Anyway, so, so, but, so I'm 33% black, uh, 33% Hispanic, about 10% Native American. Go figure. That's why I love Pocahontas so much. But anyway, so, uh, but uh, I don't know if that was racist. But anyway, so, so I take the test. And I was talking to some of the, the, the black dudes here at our church, and uh, John Bo was one of them. I'm like, hey, John, turns out I'm one-third black. He's like, brother, I could have told you that for free, man. I didn't like you did You just wasted your money, brother. I, I could have told you that for free, he said. Um, and, and, and so anyways, what, what, what happened, though, is now I, I thought I was just 100% Hispanic. Turns out I'm part black, part Hispanic, part Native American. I'm all these things. But, but here's the thing. One of the things that can happen, though, is you, I can fall into the trap of thinking, oh, oh, okay, so that means I am a black Christian, or, or that means I am a Hispanic Christian, right? And, and that's one of the things that happens. Here at Tri-Village, we have a lot of diversity. We have black people and white people and Asian people and Hispanic people. And one of the things that can happen is if we're not careful is we can be uh, black people who happen to be Christian. We can be women who happen to be Christian, men who happen to be Christian. Here's the thing. If the gospel is true, those things can describe you, but they no longer define you. So now in Jesus, you are a, a, a Christian who happens to be black. You are a Christian who happens to be white. You are a Christian who happens to be Asian. Those things still describe you. You don't walk away from them, but they no longer define you. That's true of politics. So you're either a Christian who happens to be Republican, you're a Christian who happens to be a Democrat, you're a Christian who happens to be independent, whatever you are. But at the end of the day, nothing will ever define you more than your identity in Christ. When you are called by God, that becomes your primary identity. And here's what happens, though. What we do is because we love extremes, we do one of two things. We either, when we come to God, when God calls us to him the first time and then even later on in life, we tend to be, we tend to either completely isolate ourselves from our culture, who, where we came from, or we, we still continue to idolize it. So we isolate or we idolize. God says we are to do neither. Here, here, here's why you should not isolate yourself from where you came from. Because let's say you're, you're part of a, a group of friends or you're part of a gym, or you're part of a, a bowling league. Like, who does bowling anymore? But just in, just in case that's you. <laughs> you should leave that league, but it's fine. Um, but but let's, whatever community you were a part of before, right, one of the things you are tempted to do is to isolate yourself from that and never go back. But here's why you shouldn't. 
Because what if the reason why God saved you is so that you're the one person that can reach that group of people? You're the only Christian that group of people knows now. In that workplace, in that community, in whatever hobby you do. So if whatever you were doing wasn't sinful, I would actually call you in light of Scripture to keep one foot in that world and the other one in Christianity. But your primary identity always comes from Jesus. We are to always pursue uh, uh, our identity and find everything we need in Christ. And as we do that, we actually become better missionaries. Because think about what the passage says. uh, uh, God says to Abraham, I am blessing you so that you might be a what? A blessing. So God never blesses you for just your sake. Actually, one of the ways you can, I didn't say this in the first service, one of the ways you can determine whether or not you are in God's will or not, whether or not you're following God's call on your life, is by seeing how self-centered you are in this season of your life. Your self-centeredness will tell you if you are in God's will or not. If all you're focusing is on you right now in this season of life, I promise you you're not following God's call for your life. Because God never blesses you for you to keep it to yourself. We are blessed to be a blessing. And you know what happens with a blessing that you don't give up or you don't give away? It becomes a burden. So, let's go to the next category, tribe, clan, and then the last one is the hardest one. He is to count the cost and give up his household. The passage says his father's household. Why why does it say his father's household? Why why does he specifically mention his father? I'll I'll tell you here in a second. Here's what it means by his father's household. This third category is the deepest category. This third category is the hardest category to be called away from. This third category are those friends and family that you have allowed into your inner circle. Because you know that not all families in your inner circle, right? So these are the friends and family that you have allowed into your inner circle. We are called sometimes to leave them literally, but many times we are called not, well, sometimes literally, always figuratively. Remember what Jesus says, anyone who loves their mother and father more than me is not worthy of me, okay? So Abraham here is called to walk away from his father's household. Now think about why this would be difficult for him. If you look at Genesis chapter 11, Abram's name is listed first. So what that tells us, according to commentators, is that Abram was the eldest son. So in order for him to walk away from his father's household, listen to this, not only would he have to walk away from the emotional security that came from that, he would have to walk away from the economic security. Being the eldest son, he was going to get what? The inheritance. So by walking away from his household, he was walking away not just from the emotional stability, the emotional security, but from the financial, the economic one. You know, one of the things that stood out to me this week, when God says, go to the land I will show you, in the Hebrew, the, the, the writer, of, uh, in, in the Hebrew language, the writer of Genesis, which is Moses, the, the way he writes it, he, the emphasis is not on the go, which you would think it's on the go. It is a command. It's an imperative. But it's on the you. You go. And here's, here's what, how it literally reads in Hebrew. It's you, yourself, go. Why is there so much emphasis on the you? Here's why. Because for some of us, when God calls us to go somewhere, instead of going, instead of focusing on the calling God has given you yourself, you're, you're worried about us and them. 
Yeah, but God, if I do that, what about my kids? And if I do that, what about my spouse? And if I, if I do that, what about my friends? And what if I do? And God's like, no, no, no. I'm calling you yourself, not them. Don't worry about them. I'm calling you to do something. My calling is for you. I'll take care of them, but this is for you yourself. And how often are we worried about things that we're not doing what God's calling us to do because we're too busy doing what he's supposed to do? That's, the, that's why this is so important. But here's one of the things that stood out to me this week as I was studying. And this is actually, I, I love studying God's word because every time I study it, I learn new things. But this piece of information was so important that I, I'm shocked that after all these years, I'd never realized this. Abraham had to pay a cost. There had to be a cost to this calling that God put on Abraham. Clearly, it was a great cost that he had to incur in order to follow the call of God. But I don't know if you know this, but actually Abraham ended up paying a higher cost. He ended up paying a higher price because he didn't actually obey God the first time. I always thought, when I saw Genesis chapter 12, I always thought that Abraham was this man of faith who heard from God and did exactly what God called him to do. But when I looked at the passage again, for the first, for the, it felt like for the first time ever, what I discovered is that when God shows up in Genesis chapter 12, that's not the first time he's calling Abraham. It's actually the second time he's calling Abraham. Let me show you how I know that's true. Look what it says in Genesis 1. It says, look at that. And, and you could read right past it if you're not paying attention. It's in the past tense. It says, the Lord had said to Abraham. In the Hebrew, it's in the past tense. And I'm like, well, that's weird. What do you mean he has said? I thought it said that the Lord said to him for the first time. No, no. It says the Lord had said to him. Past tense. So I'm looking through the Old Testament, and I can't figure out why it was in the past tense. Then in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 3, Stephen gets up, the, one of the, the followers of Jesus, he gets up, he's preaching a sermon, and he actually provides the context that the Old Testament does not provide. Look what he says. He says, to this he replied, this is Stephen talking, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, listen to this, while he was still in Mesopotamia, or the Ur of the Chaldeans, another way to put it, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Why is that so important? Because in Genesis chapter 12, when God shows up, he was already in Haran. He wasn't in, in, in Mesopotamia anymore. He was already in Haran. So what that tells us is that God actually told him to do it before that. It's the second time God has to speak to him. Second time that God has to come talk to Abraham. And parents love this line, but it's true. Listen, delayed obedience is disobedience. God told Abraham, I need you to go. While he was still in Mesopotamia, while he was still in, in the Ur of the, uh, of the Chaldeans, I need you to go to the land I will show you. Uh, Acts chapter 7, and then in Genesis chapter 11, it, the, the same word is used twice. It says that instead of going to the land of Canaan, where, which is where God eventually wanted him to go, he settled in Haran. The reason why that word settled is so important, and the reason why I know that the Holy Spirit and his inspiration used that word twice is because that word settled is the same word that is used to describe the sin of the people in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel. Same Hebrew word. 
It says that the people of Babel were to go and be fruitful and multiply and to spread across the earth. But instead, they settled in the plain of Shinar. And they were sinning because they had settled in some place other than where God wanted them to settle. And the word settle in Hebrew is a fascinating word. The word settle there means to rest. It means to lie down. It means, and I can't make this up, it means to abide in something. According to John chapter 15, though, the only person we are to, to abide in is Jesus Christ. You and I are not called to abide in a place. We are called to abide in a person. The issue with the people at Babel and the issue with Abraham is that instead of going to the place God said, he settled in Haran. So Mr. Uh, 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 Faith R. Us, Abraham, who we love to glorify and put on a platform, not only does he sin later on, he even sins before Genesis 12. Because he settled, it says. How many of us have done the same thing? God has called you to go somewhere. And you started going, you packed your bags, and you're like, you know what, this, this place is good here. I like this. I, I followed you halfway, God. I'm going to go ahead and just stop right here. The people in my clan, the people in my household really like this place. So I'm going to go ahead and do their will instead of yours. Settled. He rested. He abided in something other than God. And so he was already in disobedience when God shows up. He's not a man of faith. He's a man of fear. God has to repeat it again. Go. Go, he says. So, so, so here's my question for you. Here's a question that's just been really bothering me. Why does God insist on making our lives miserable? Seriously. I, I just kept thinking about it. I'm like, he was fine. Leave the man alone. He didn't listen the first time. Leave him in Haran. Go with someone else. Why does God insist on constantly pushing us out of the familiar and the comfortable? Why? Why, why is God always doing that? Here's why. The reason why God doesn't let you settle, the reason why God always sends you out and doesn't let you settle is because when you find the familiar, when you find safety, when you find security, you end up settling in that, in your circumstance, instead of in Christ. Listen, listen, the reason, one of the things that just, that just was, was just so, uh, um, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, I got confused there for a second. So, so we, 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 God does it. The reason why God does this is because God wants to grow us. God is trying to do something in us. Listen, the reason why God is constantly pushing you out of the familiar, of the comfortable, is because he's trying to do two things. He wants you to rely on his grace, and he wants to produce your growth. That's why God's always pushing you out of your comfort zone. That's why God's always pushing you away from your safety net. His grace and our growth. His grace and our growth. Let me look at the first one. The first reason why God's always pushing us is because he wants us to rely on his grace. You know, what's incredible about Abraham is that from this moment onward, as you look at the life of Abraham, it's in the passage, there's only two things that Abraham is carrying with him, essentially, for the rest of the journey. A tent and an altar. That's all he has. A tent and an altar. Why? Well, one commentator said that the reason why he has a tent is because God wanted to remind him, remind him that earth wasn't his home. And the reason why 
he had an altar everywhere he stopped is because God wanted to remind him that heaven was his home. See, that's why God calls us out, so that the only thing we have is his grace. We live with tents and with altars, and the only place we can find our identity is not in a place but in a person. The only place we can find our security is not in a season but a savior. He does it on purpose so that we are forced to rely on his grace. That's why God does it. The reason why God is constantly pushing us out of the familiar, constantly pushing us out of that secure place, that, that safe place, that, 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 that place of, of, of safety. The reason why God is constantly pushing us out is because God wants to make sure that we are finding our significance, our security, and our satisfaction horizontally in him and not vertically in others. I am convinced that the reason why many times God keeps us in the dark is because when we are in the dark, then only he can be our light. So, so the first reason why God sends us out and he refuses to allow us to get comfortable is because of his grace. He wants us to rely on his grace. But, grace. but the second reason is because he wants our growth. He wants us to grow in our faith. Here's how I know. One of the things that you see in the passage is in Genesis chapter 12, God's calling Abraham to take a pretty bold step of faith. But what's so fascinating is if you look a little bit later on in his life, that wasn't the last time God called Abraham to do something. And actually, God calls him, as hard as that seemed, Genesis 12, what God calls him to do later on is, is way worse. And it's almost like God is starting with something little so that he can prepare him for the greater callings he's going to give him later on. So God says here, hey, go to the land I will show you. Abraham's, where is it? I'll show you later. Then a few chapters later, hey, I'm going to give you a son. Uh, where's that? Where, 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 how's that going to happen? I'll show you later. Hey, hey, I want you to go up on the mountain and sacrifice your son. Where, where, where's the sacrifice going to come from? I'll show you later. But what's so interesting is that by the time Abraham gets to that third calling, He's been so conditioned to know God's going to show up that his son says, where's the sacrifice going to come from? And Abraham says, God will provide. He's growing him. God is so gracious that he's growing him step by step by step by step, calling by calling by calling by calling. But Abraham, like many of us, instead of living out being sent, he, he settled. He settled. And so, so, so he, he goes... And instead of landing in Canaan, which is where God wants him, he settles in, in, in Haran. He's there with his father. He, he's still so busy uh, trying to get his earthly father's approval that he doesn't seek his heavenly father's approval. And then one commentator said this. The reason why, remember what he said. He said, you yourself go. God's calling Abraham and Sarah, just those two people. One commentator said that the reason why he brings Lot with him is because there's a part of him that didn't think God was going to provide a son. And so if I bring my nephew, then I'm going to have someone to give all these promises and inheritance to. So Lot was his backup plan. But what we see is that what was already a very high cost became a higher cost because his father ends up dying and Lot becomes a, become, ends up becoming a huge thorn in his side. Why? Because instead of living by faith, he lived by fear. So listen, the reason why God makes us, calls us to, to count the cost. And, and, and the reason why every calling comes with a cost is because God wants you to know, not only do I want you to rely on my grace, but I'm doing this for your, for your growth. And what a lot of us are participating in, we're not participating in 
authentic Christianity. We're participating in comfortable Christianity. You know what comfortable Christianity does? Hey, hey God, God says, I want you to go there. Yeah, 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 but, 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 but can I get an explanation? Like, what's going to happen over there? Hey, I'll go, but, but what are you going to do when we get there? Hey, hey, can, can, I'm calling you to leave this job. Well, no, no, I, I know, I know you are, but, 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 but what if I, something happens? Like, what, can, can I get an explanation? Listen, God doesn't give you explanations. He gives you promises. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather, I'd rather have a promise than an explanation because explanations can change. Promises never change. We do the, yeah, I'll go there, but. And the problem that with that is that when you do that, you're still in the driver's seat and you're still on the throne. God shows up and says, well, listen, listen, I'm not trying to fit into your agenda. I am trying to become your agenda. I don't, I'm not here to be added onto your life. I'm here to be your life. And the quicker we understand that, the more obedient we will be to the calls God has on our lives. So, Let's go back to the three points. We've looked at the cast. We've looked at the cost. I want to conclude this morning by looking at the covenant. The covenant. In this passage, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Now, here's the thing about Scripture. In Scripture, there are several types of covenants. There's the Adamic covenant that God made with Adam. There's the Noahic covenant that God made with Noah. There's the Davidic covenant that God made with David. And this one, I would argue, is probably the most prominent, most important covenant in the Old Testament. It's called the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant God made with Abraham. Now, in order to really understand just how significant this covenant is, I want to explain to you two facets that we need to understand if we are going to get a biblical grasp of just how significant this covenant was. Uh, the first thing I want you to see is I want you to see the source of the covenant. And then the second thing I want you to see is I want you to see the sacrifice for the covenant. Okay? So let's begin with the source. One of the mistakes that we can make when we hear the word Abrahamic covenant is we might assume that the covenant is ultimately about Abraham. We might be tempted to assume that the person who initiated it, the person who keeps it, the person who maintains it, the person who sustains it is Abraham. What we discover, though, is that the person that the covenant is about, the source of the covenant is not Abraham the man. It's the God of Abraham, the Bible says. The God of Abraham is the source. And this covenant, the reason why this covenant is so significant and so important is because this covenant literally reverses Babel. Genesis chapter 11. Uh, uh, Genesis 12 reverses what happens in Genesis chapter 11. Think about what's happening in Babel. In Babel, you have these people who don't want to obey God, and they said, let us build a city. Let us build a tower. Let us build our way into heaven. So, but if you look at what they say, the reason why they're doing it, it says, let us do this in order to build a name for ourselves. So the reason why they are doing what they do in Genesis chapter 11 is because they want a greater name, a greater land, and they want greater access into heaven. But what I discovered is that the issue with these people, the issue with the people in Genesis chapter 11, it wasn't their aspirations. Their aspirations were good. It's good to want a greater name, a greater land, and greater access. Their problem wasn't their aspirations. Their problem was their approach. They were going about it the wrong way. Instead of relying on God, they were relying on themselves. And so what's beautiful about Genesis chapter 12 is that God shows up and says, listen, what you tried to do in human strength, I'm going to do in divine salvation. God shows up and he gives Abraham everything that those people wanted without Abraham ever lifting a finger. And so the let us of Genesis chapter 11 
is replaced with the I will of Genesis chapter 12. The grit of Genesis chapter 11 is replaced with the grace of Genesis chapter 12. The, the achieve of Genesis chapter 11 is replaced with the receive of Genesis chapter 12. God shows up and says, no, 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 no. Your aspirations are good, but your approach is wrong. You will, you will find these things not by building your way up to heaven, but by heaven coming down to you. So that is the source. The source of the covenant is God. Then we look at the sacrifice, and you're like, sacrifice? Why, why do we need a sacrifice? Well, here's why we need a sacrifice. Because I don't know if you know this, but there's a problem. Everyone say there's a problem. The problem is this, that the covenant that God makes to Abraham, Abraham doesn't deserve it. And there's a very big gap between the height of the covenant and the depths of his condition. There's a very big gap between the heights of the promise and the depths of his position. A very big gap. And someone would have to make up that gap. And Abraham and God both knew that Abraham was not going to be that person. And that's why in Genesis chapter 15, literally three chapters later, God shows up to Abraham in this very obscure, very misunderstood passage. He shows up to Abraham and he reiterates, he reestablishes the covenant. But Abraham, instead of responding by faith, he says, well, God, how do I know that this is going to happen? How do I know that you're going to do it? Because I know I'm not going to be able to do it. So how is this going to actually transpire? God says to Abraham, I want you to go and get three animals. And that's all God says. He goes and he grabs animals, and all of a sudden, he brings the animals back, and he rips them in half. He, he tears them in two. He puts one half of the animal over here and the other half of the animal over there. Now, if you don't know anything about that culture, you're like, outside of animal endangerment, I don't know what's going on in this story, right? But here's why Abraham just automatically knows to do that, to take the animals God calls him to get and to rip them in half, to tear them apart. It was because in those days, when, when, when you and I make a contract today, the way we make a contract is we draft up a piece of paper, and then you sign it and I sign it, and we both commit to the contract. But in those days, it was way more intense. In those days, the way you made a contract, if you and I were making a land contract or an inheritance contract, whatever the contract was about, what we would do is we would grab an animal, we would rip it in two, put one part of the carcass over here, the other part of the carcass over here, and here's what we would do. We would both walk through in between the, the, the carcasses, and here's what we were saying. If one of us breaks the covenant, we will be torn in two. If I don't keep my end of the bargain, I will be ripped in half. That's what that contract meant. So Abraham, knowing that that's how contracts were made, he wants God to make this covenant. He grabs the animals. He, he, splits, them and he splits the animal in two. And so he's just waiting for God to show up so they can walk through it together. But what's so incredible about the passage, it says that Abraham is sitting there and he's waiting. And all of a sudden, this darkness comes over him. And when this darkness comes over him, he gets in this, like, this dream-like state where he's still aware but can't really move. And, but he can still see what's happening. And all of a sudden... It says that this, this uh, flaming fire pot and this blazing torch come down and go through the carcass, the carcasses for him. Now, commentators are really confused by that. Like, why is there a flaming fire pot and a blazing torch? It, just, it doesn't make sense. But even though the imagery is tough to figure out, here's why we know it was God. Because in the Old Testament, the only times those two words are found together are at Mount Sinai 
and in the wilderness when God is leading the people with a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. So even though the imagery is hard to determine, we know it's God because only God ever showed up in that way. So God, he walks, follow me here, he goes through the, the, this anim, these animals, this, this, these carcasses that have been ripped apart, that have been torn in two. And by going through, and what we see in the story is Abraham never gets a chance to go through. The reason why, follow with me here, the reason why God does that is God wants Abraham to know and God wants us to know that not only is he the initiator of the covenant, he is the keeper of the covenant. So here's what God is saying to him and to us. The reason why I am walking through is that if you disobey or I disobey, regardless of who disobeys the covenant, the person who's going to have to be torn in two is me. The person who's going to have to be ripped apart is me. The person who's going to have to be cut off is me. God made that covenant to him, and he made that covenant to us. What happens? A few thousand years later, uh, in John chapter 3, we discover that the Lamb of God comes down. And the Lamb of God goes to a cross, and at the cross, the Lamb of God is torn apart. After, at the cross, the Lamb of God is cut in two. At the cross, the Lamb of God is completely cut off. Why? For you and for me. He kept his side of the covenant. He kept our side of the covenant for you and for me. Can I get an Amen. amen. Do you, do you get how ridiculous this is? Listen, if this isn't moving you, if you're thinking about lunch right now or what you want to do later, you don't get it. You don't get it. This is incredible news. This is good news. All we deserve is bad news. At the cross, we get good news. Listen, in the Old Testament, God says, I will. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I did. Come on. This changes everything. If you get this, it changes everything. See, see, God knew that the first Abraham wasn't going to be enough. And so he sent the, the greater Abraham. And the greater Abraham left a greater country. He left a greater people. He left a greater household. He came down and lived a greater life. At the end of his life, he deserved a greater blessing. But instead, he got the greater cursing so that we might get the greater blessing. Come on. That's what we see. It changes everything if you get it. You'll go anywhere if you get this. There's nothing that you won't give up for him. You'll give up anything because he's already give, given up everything for you. So, so, so as, as, as we process this, let me, let me, let me bring this thing, this thing full circle for you. When you, when you get to the place where, where you see that, that Jesus... That, that, that if, if, if this is true, if this, if this covenant is true, then what it means is we, we don't achieve anything. We just receive everything. If this is true, then what it means is that Jesus is the Savior and we're the saved. Jesus is the rescuer and we are the rescued. Jesus is the redeemer and we are the redeemed. Jesus is the giver and we are the recipients. That's all it can mean. And that's why it's good news. That's why it's good news. And, and, and as you bring the whole thing full circle and we, we bring it back to what God might be calling you to do right now. I don't know what God is calling you to do. I, I really don't. But, but God knows and, and you know what God is calling you to do. But here's what I do know. If the gospel is true, when you see that Jesus was willing to give up a home, he was willing to give up a family, he was willing to give up a country, he was willing to give up his significance, his security, and his significance, once you see Jesus giving up all those things for you, then and only then will you be willing to give it up for him. No matter what God's calling you to do, no matter how difficult it is, it was much more difficult for him. 
No matter how far God is calling you to go, Jesus went way further than you did. So what we discover then is the reason why we can go anywhere, the reason why we will accept his call no matter where God is calling us, is because our true home, our true family, our true security, our true significance, our true satisfaction is not found in a place, it's found in a person. It's not found in a particular season, it's found in a particular Savior. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let's pray.